My name is Ryan. I want to welcome you to week five now of our series called Peaks and Valleys. Um, what we're doing in this series is uh, moving through the life of David, uh, looking at different chapters of his life. And, and when you do that with any character uh, in the Bible, what, what you'll find, what I've found, and what I'm sure you're going to find throughout this series, is that people have always been people, meaning we have always dealt with the same issues. And uh, today, we're looking at a, at a very specific moment in David's life uh, that brings us face-to-face with a problem that will uh, it'll ruin the quality of your life, uh, and if left untreated, it will, it'll ruin your life altogether. It's the problem of envy. Uh, before I get into it, I have a kind of a bold statement to make. Um, let me offer this to you as kind of the thesis today, that I, I believe that we are right now we are more susceptible to the destructive power of envy than any generation and any civilization that has come before us in the history of mankind. Let it bear. Oh, somebody agrees. All right. Um, I know that's a bold statement to make, but the reason I say that is because, uh, as you're no doubt aware, but, but you're, you're going to absolutely see in, in this passage today, envy is all about, you know, looking over the fence and into the life of someone else. And because of the rise of the information age and, and specifically this thing known as social media that you almost can't live without anymore, what that's done is it's given every one of us the ability to look over the fence and into the life of literally hundreds of millions of people, which is not only something that no civilization before us has ever been able to do, it's, it's something that they wouldn't have dreamed of being able to do. It's just an unheard of thing to be able to, to get a... Uh, a, a glance into that many people's lives, but what that's done is it's created an entire culture of people who are completely sold under the power and really into slavery of envy. And, and, and my opinion is that, that our culture is so immersed in it, you know, we're almost like fish in water swimming in it, that it's almost become impossible for us to recognize because a lot of times I think we look at envy and we just, we, we dress it up and we put lipstick on it and we call it something else. I think a lot of times what gets called ambition or what gets called, you know, being on your grind or your hustle or what gets called, you know, just being competitive, what it is in, in the eyes of God, according to his word, is it's envy. And so, you know, my firm conviction is that um, countless people are having the quality of their life just destroyed by envy. And if we're not careful, it's going to take our entire lives from us, just like it does uh, for Saul today. So what I want to do is open up 1 Samuel chapter 18, <clears throat> uh, and I'll read verses 1 to 14. It says, when David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan committed himself to David and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the soldiers, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. As the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines with shouts of joy, and with three-stringed instruments. As they celebrated, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David 
his tens of thousands. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. The next day, an evil spirit sent from God took control of Saul, and he began to rave inside the palace. David was playing the lyre as usual, but Saul was holding a spear, and he threw it, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. Therefore, Saul reassigned David and made him commander over 1,000 men. David led the troops and continued to be successful in all his activities because the Lord was with him. This is God's word. So what you're looking at in this story is, is the picture of Saul's life continuing to unravel, which is something that's been going on for several chapters now. But the thing that is specifically causing it to continue to unravel uh, is this horrible thing called envy. And what it, what it did in Saul's life is what it will do in your and my life if we can't figure out how to get a hold of it. And what's so valuable about this passage we're looking at today is it really functions as a diagnostic tool that can show you and I how not only to understand but to overcome envy in our own hearts. And so what I want to do today is, is um, look at envy from three angles. I want to look at, first off, the anatomy of envy. I want to look at the activity of envy. And then I'm going to look at the answer to envy. All of it starts with A, so you know it's going to be good, all right? So, so first and foremost, not really a main idea as much as a theme, let's talk about, number one, the anatomy of envy. Uh, in this passage, at a very specific point in this passage, we're shown that there's three stages to the, if you want to call it, the life cycle of envy. Uh, and you can almost think of it, you can almost think of envy as, as, as um, like a plant, like a flower, uh, in, in, the, in the sense that there's, you know, kind of three main parts to a flower. There's the roots that are largely hidden from view that grow underneath the surface. And then you have the stem. And then, of course, you have the blossom. And you can see all uh, three of these parts in what Saul famously said here in verses 8 and 9. Let me read it again to you. It says, Saul was furious and resented this song. He says, they credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. So the question is, what are the, what are the three phases to the life cycle of envy? You, you can see them all here. The first and the most foundational, though, uh, is this thing you're probably familiar with called comparison. Comparison. Uh, you see this in verse 8, where Saul says, they credited tens of thousands to David, but they only credited me with thousands. So what Saul is doing here is he's comparing his life to David which is always the foundation and, and really the first stage in the growth cycle of envy. Uh, the way that envy starts is you, you, you observe what other people have, but, but it's not enough to just observe what they have. What we all have a, a natural tendency to do is we connect what someone else has to what we have, and we wind up comparing what someone else has to what we have. And like the roots of a plant, interestingly enough, this first part of the growth cycle of envy is largely hidden from plain view, meaning it's entirely possible for you and I right now to be actively comparing our life with someone else um, 
and for that to be largely hidden from those around us. It grows beneath the surface in our lives, but that's always the foundation of envy. Uh, it's also, however, never where envy stays, because that in and of itself, comparison by itself, is not really enough to create envy, because simply saying, hey, this person has something that I don't have is really just a statement of fact. And so the second stage in the growth cycle of envy, according to Saul here, uh, is desire. And you see this in verse 9, where it says, So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. What that means, to watch somebody jealousy, what the Bible's saying there is that, that Saul is no longer simply observing David's life in comparison to his own. He's now desiring David's life more than his own. Uh, this is the second stage in the growth cycle of envy, where not only are we comparing our life to somebody else's life, but we find you'll find yourself beginning to desire their life more than the life that you have. You know, you'll find yourself desiring somebody else's looks, uh, somebody else's talent, somebody else's situation in life, somebody else's spouse, somebody else's life. And again, uh, like the parts of a plant, uh, you'll find that this, when this stage of envy begins to take place in your life and grow in your life, you'll find that it's very difficult, if not impossible, to hide. Because what happens is to the degree that this stage of envy takes hold in you to that same degree, um, all joy is going to begin to live your life. Because anybody who's lived any length of time can sympathize with the reality uh, that it's impossible to desire somebody else's life without becoming increasingly dissatisfied with your own life. So you have, first off, comparison. Secondly, desire. But the third stage of the life cycle of envy is resentment. All right, what, what the first two stages of envy have in common is that they're still focused on what this other person has that you don't have. But when envy uh, becomes fully developed in your own life, what you'll find is that it's no longer just about what somebody else has. It's about who that person is. Uh, and so what will happen is you'll begin to resent them, uh, and you'll feel like they don't deserve the life that they have, and you do deserve the life that they have. And you'll justify that by telling yourself whatever you need to tell yourself, that you've worked harder than them, that you've sacrificed more than them, that you've been a more moral person than them, that you're, for whatever reason, you're just better than them and you're owed a better life than them. And when that happens, you begin barreling down the path of this dehumanizing that person and eventually really hating that person, which is exactly what you see in Saul's life, really from this moment forward toward David. What happens in Saul's life is he basically develops what you could call David phobia. It's this irrational fear and hatred of David. And so people have pointed out that, that envy... It, it's, a, um, it's an ugly enough thing that, that envy will not only have you weeping when somebody else rejoices, but the flip side of that is also true, uh, that envy will have you rejoicing when somebody else is weeping. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard, uh, there's a famous um, German term. I love, um, talk to a friend of mine, Lars, about this a number of times. Uh, the German language is amazing because it has very specific words that encapsulate entire ideas in English, and some of them are, are really hilarious. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the term, I believe it's pronounced schadenfreude. It looks like schadenfreude to us. Uh, it's basically a term that refers to deriving pleasure from someone else's misfortune, schadenfreude. Uh, we live in a culture of that. We live in a culture of schadenfreude. 
which is really easy to quantify because if you, if, you know, if you hop online, you get on Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is, you'll find that, that far and away, it's the stories of a person's personal tragedy, you know, the stories of people who once had everything but lost it all because of their own foolish decisions or whatever. Those stories always seem to get the most likes and the most retweets and the most, you know, traffic in general because there's something so sinister about the human heart that causes it to actually love it when somebody else, you know, falls from grace. And what that is, is that is the tangible evidence of full-blown, fully developed envy in someone's life. So that's the, that's the anatomy of envy. It's comprised mainly of three things. You have, it begins with a, a comparison that forms beneath the surface in your life that leads to an inordinate desire for what somebody else has that eventually will have you resenting them simply because somebody else has the life that you want. Secondly, for our second theme today, I want to build off that and talk about the activity of envy, what it actually does in your and my life. That's what it's made up of. Let's talk about what it does. And the, the reason that I think it's so important to talk about this is because I, I, I sort of hinted at this in the intro, is because we live in a culture that's so immersed in envy and so, I, I think, poisoned by envy that we don't even see it as, as really that big a deal. And that's not just an opinion that I have. I actually had a conversation uh, with a friend of mine this week, um, not a Christian, um, Really good friend of mine, uh, does, doesn't attend church, but he was raised in uh, Catholicism. And so I, I was putting this teaching together on, on envy, and I, I reached out to him. I was just curious what he'd have to say. And I said, hey, you were raised a good Catholic. What do you think is the worst of the seven deadly sins? One of which, of course, is, is envy. And uh, he gave me a really thoughtful answer. And uh, he actually answered the question from two different angles. He, he told me what he thought the worst one was for him personally and then which, he, which deadly sin would be worse for society at large. But our, our conversation became just sort of a more widespread conversation about the seven deadly sins. But it's what he said about envy that really caught my attention because I think his thoughts on envy are basically what we all tend to think of when we think of envy. Uh, he said that, that envy, being envious, really is not that bad of a thing if it motivates you. Because, you know, for, from his perspective, he was saying, hey, let's call it what it is. Envy is what gets a lot of people out of bed in the morning. You know, the desire to compete, the, the, the desire to, to have more, the desire to earn, the desire to keep up, whatever it is. Uh, and I think overall, that's how all of us are prone to thinking about envy. That uh, either it's, it's, it's not really that big a deal or, or maybe even it can kind of be a positive thing. It can be a positive motivator in somebody's life. Um, if that's where you're coming from, I just want to open up Saul's life real briefly here and, and uh, try to show you how serious envy actually is. And, and I'll, I'll just tell you on the front end here, um, spending a week in this passage has shown me two things. First off, it's shown me that I struggle with envy a lot more than I thought I did. Uh, and secondly, it shows me that envy is a way bigger deal than I thought it was. All right? So I'm just going to give you two things based on the life of Saul that, that uh, envy actually does and will do in your life. Number one, here's what envy does, according to Saul's life, envy robs. And what I mean by that is, is envy will rob you of joy that is otherwise warranted in your life. This is the first, and I would say the most obvious uh, impact that it had in Saul's life. You just have to zoom out a little bit um, to see it. So, so remember, in, in 1 Samuel 18, uh, the events of this chapter are coming directly on the heels. I mean, this is taking place seamlessly right after David kills Goliath. That episode was even referenced in, in uh, the story we're reading today. And so re remember that just maybe not even days before this, 
uh, you had Goliath, who's the champion of the Philistine army, basically holding the entire nation of Israel hostage. If you read chapter 17, uh, the text actually says that for 40 days, Goliath would step forward from the ranks of the Israelite army before the ranks, pardon me, from the ranks of the Philistine army before the ranks of the Israelite army. And for 40 days, scripture says, he dared someone from the Israelite army to challenge him in single combat. For 40 days, Goliath did that. So I would just ask you for a moment here to psychologically try to get into what it was like to be Israel at that time. Uh, you have this Goliath taunting you, taunting your God, and for 40 days, not a single soldier has the courage to stand before this guy. I'm, I'm willing to bet, and it's not hard to imagine, that morale was probably the lowest it had been in Israel since they were enslaved in Egypt. This is, this is hopeless, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's this kind of low grade, what's going to happen here? Into that scenario, you have David, the unlikely hero, you know, the shepherd boy, nobody knows who his dad is, nobody knows who he is. He comes out and he kills Goliath, essentially freeing all of Israel from what would have surely been Philistine domination. Now, no matter what way you look at that scenario, that is a situation that calls for nothing but joy, specifically on the part of Saul. Because if you know anything about ancient Near Eastern culture, you know that conquering nations were not particularly kind to the kings of the nation that they conquered, all right? If the Philistines had destroyed Israel, which it certainly looked like they were going to do, then Saul probably had the worst future of, of all Israel ahead of him. You know, they, they were almost definitely going to torture him in, in some really unbelievable ways uh, and, and kill him, um, basically as a warning to what happens when you resist Philistine rule. And so David is the only reason that Saul gets to live, to sit on the throne of God's people for another day. As far as I'm concerned, Saul should have been leading the parade celebrating David's victory. And when it says here that women were singing songs about David's triumph, Saul should have been writing those songs. I mean, he should have had, you know, David in his chariot with his arm around him, kind of wheeling around Israel, like, this is our guy, this is our hero, you know, let's whatever, thank him, something like that. But instead, you see the exact opposite in this story. Instead, uh, Saul has, not only does he have no joy in his life, like the rest of Israel does, but that, that the absence of joy has actually created the presence of paranoia. It's created the, 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 uh, the, uh, the presence of fear. He's actually miserable over what's gone on in David's life because that's exactly what, what uh, envy will do. It will rob you of the joy that, that should otherwise be yours. And so if I can just pivot here from Saul's life to your and my life, uh, let me just ask you to consider in your life personally what I'm about to say because this is probably true of all of us to one degree or another. A lot of us are right now standing in what we used to consider to be our promised land. Meaning a lot of us right now have gotten something that we used to work really hard for or used to pray really hard for. You know, maybe, maybe you got into the school that one time you, you wanted so badly to get into or you got the degree that you wanted so badly and worked so hard to get or you got the job or you got married or you had kids or you got into the house or whatever it is. Right now, you're standing where you used to dream about standing and yet you're no happier than you were before you got there. And the reason for that, nine times out of ten in your and my life, is because when we get to where we told ourselves we wanted to go, we start looking around into somebody else's life and we allow envy to rob us of the joy that should otherwise be ours. And this is one of the things that actually makes envy a little bit unique, specifically when you compare it to some of the other deadly sins. A guy named Joseph Epstein, Joseph Epstein, not Jeffrey, Joseph Epstein wrote a book called Envy, 
not a believer, not a Christian, but he, um, he observed uh, something that makes envy so unique when you compare it to the other common vices. Here's the quote. He said, giving into sloth and laziness is rather pleasant. Losing one's temper entails a release that's not without its small delights. And lust, greed, pride bring quite a bit of pleasure for quite a long time. Here's what he said. Only envy is absolutely no fun at all, draining all joy from you from its very first moment. We have all felt envy's dark, deep, soul-destroying, lacerating stabs. So first and foremost, why is envy a big deal? Because it robs. But the second thing Saul's life shows us is that envy distorts. And this is really why it robs. To explain this, uh, let me speak to a question that, that for me, uh, this passage raises. I, I want to read verse 10 to you. It says, The next day, <clears throat> an evil spirit sent from God took control of Saul, and he began to rave inside the, the palace. So, so let me ask a question that you've probably already asked yourself. What the heck is that about? An evil spirit sent from God took control of Saul. Uh, I remember years and years and years ago when I first came across this, this was really hard for me to reconcile because if you follow that thought process long enough, that will lead you to some really uncomfortable questions about what God's really like. And to be perfectly honest with you, I just chose not to investigate that. I just chalked that up as, "Ah, that's a difficult one. And I hope nobody outside the faith ever asked me to defend it because I wouldn't know how I would do it. It wasn't until very recently that um, the meaning of, of a verse like this was, was explained in a way that actually satisfied me. Uh, another place in Scripture that you'll see something like this is in the book of Exodus where, where you're told, if you're, if you're familiar with the story, in Exodus chapter 9, we're actually told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which is another one that just seems really wow on the surface. You know, it, it, you read that at face value and it kind of seems like, okay, so God kept Pharaoh from being a good guy even if he wanted to be one, he made Pharaoh a bad guy and then he punished Pharaoh for being a bad guy, which at least from a human perspective, that doesn't seem fair to me. But if you actually read Pharaoh's you know, arc, if you want to call it that way, throughout the beginning, the first eight chapters of the book of Exodus, you, you'll find something really interesting. What you'll find is that long before God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh chose as a lifestyle uh, to harden his own, one decision at a time. What you'll find is that um, at that point in Scripture, Pharaoh is shown to be the most wicked human being in humanity's history, up to that point in human history. Not only does he choose to brutally enslave God's people, the nation of Israel, uh, but on top of that, he develops, much like Saul here, this irrational fear of Israel to the point that he orders for the first time recorded in Scripture infanticide. Pharaoh actually ordered that every newborn Israelite boy be taken from its mother at birth and thrown into the Nile. That's a kind of evil that will take your breath away. And when God raises up Moses to speak into Pharaoh's life and command him to release God's people, uh, you'll you'll find that through those first five plagues that God sends, Scripture's very clear, Pharaoh hardens his own heart against God and God's people. It's not until the sixth plague recorded in Exodus chapter 9 that we read that God, in response to all that, finally hardens Pharaoh's heart. So really, what, what, what Scripture's getting at when it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart uh, is, is really what that means is, is God is essentially just handing Pharaoh over to the life that Pharaoh had already freely chosen for himself. 
And if you read the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, this is actually the way that God deals with all of us. There's a really sobering group of verses in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. You should read it this week if you're curious, where Paul actually says that the way that God deals with humanity and the way that God has, has kind of sovereignly divined, uh, um, sovereignly ordained evil to be sort of an end in and of itself is what God will do is he will deliver people over to the, the, um, the passions and the desires that they have already chosen to indulge in themselves. It's a frightening thing to think about God doing that in your or my life, but frankly, it's the most fair thing that God could do, to simply give the human heart more of what it has consistently and persistently chosen. And essentially, that's exactly uh, what, what um, God is doing with, with King Saul here. See, because this, when you read an evil spirit sent from God, comes, that sounds really bad if you think that for the first 17 chapters, Saul was this amazing God-fearing leader. It's just not the case. Right, if you've been following along in this series, you know that very early on, Saul is shown to be this kind of narcissistic, insecure, egomaniacal leader that is far more concerned with his own reputation and his own image than he is about honoring God and leading Israel in a way that honors God. Uh, already, Saul has, has shown that he has no problem letting his soldiers fight and bleed and die for them while throwing them under the bus. He's the kind of guy that demands credit when things go right, but he, he, he also will receive absolutely no blame for when things go wrong. Um, in other words, he's, he's just proven to be a very poor leader. And so what God is doing in his life here uh, is he's, he's handing him over to more of the envy that he's already chosen for himself. And, and what's being recorded for us is that that envy is, to con is continually distorting him the way that envy will distort your and my life if we allow it to. Uh, and, and to show that to you, let me just keep reading in verse 10 here. So it says, David was playing the lyre as usual, but Saul was holding a spear. That's bad news. Verse 11, and he threw it thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. And then read this, but David got away from him twice. Let me just pause there. So let, let's make sure that we understand this. David was recruited to the palace of King Saul because basically his musical ability was the only thing that could soothe King Saul when these episodes would overtake him. Basically, it, it seems like Saul had some kind of uh, maybe mental affliction or, or, or mental disease or something like that. And the only thing that could provide any kind of relief for him was, was King David's musical ability. And we're told here that twice Saul had thrown a spear at David with the intent to kill him while David played. Let me say that one more time. Twice that happened. Here's what that means. It means that once before... Saul tried to murder David, and yet David refused to flee. David, who recognized that his king suffered from some kind of affliction, that he was the only one that could, could really help with it, once before being murdered, David decided, I'm going to stay with Saul, even though this guy you know, turned on me, even though this guy's trying to murder me. He refuses to abandon his king. You just got to ask the question here, what kind of loyalty are we actually talking about? I mean, what, I mean, what kind of, you know, dedication to King Saul are we talking about here? David is consistently throughout this narrative shown to be, you know, the kind of servant, the kind of right-hand man that most leaders would kill for, and yet King Saul here is trying to actually kill him. But even that's not the craziest thing that I read here. The craziest thing is found in verse 12, where it says that Saul was afraid of David. You know what I'd expect to read here? I would expect it to say, verse 12, 
Uh, and David, the guy who's just narrowly avoided being murdered for the second time, started to get a little uneasy around Saul. <laughs> but that's not what it says. It says Saul is afraid of David. The way this, this, this story plays out, it sort of makes it look like Saul is losing his mind. You want to know why? Because he is. Because that's what envy does. By the time envy is done with you, it will distort your entire view of reality. I was thinking about, isn't it interesting that we call envy and jealousy the green-eyed monster? I don't know when that became a phrase, but, but it's, it's really telling that somewhere along the line, people realized that envy is fundamentally a disease of the eye. It's a disease that affects your vision. It distorts your entire view of reality. And what Saul's life shows us is that envy will distort your view of what you have, and that what you have will never look good enough to you. It'll never look like enough for you. It'll distort your view of yourself. You will always see yourself as a person who, de who deserves a better life than the one that you have. And finally, when it really consumes you, uh, it'll distort your view of everyone around you. You will no longer be able to discern a friend from an enemy. And because envy distorts your view of reality, it will, it will uh, cause you to make increasingly foolish decisions which will eventually lead to your ruin. So for anybody that would say, you know, envy, not really that big a deal, the life of Saul would suggest otherwise. Envy, if not dealt with in your life, will rob you of joy, making you totally miserable, and it will distort your view of reality until it leads to your own ruin. So the question is, what are we supposed to do about this? And this leads us to our, our final theme today. I want to talk about number three, the answer to envy. Uh, Saul's life is an amazing resource if you want to look at, at the, uh, the problem of envy. But if you actually want to see the solution to it and the answer to it, you have to look at his son, uh, Jonathan. And, and uh, specifically what his son does as recorded in the first several verses of this passage. Let me read verses 1 to 4. It says, When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan committed himself to David and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. What happens in those verses is, is really incredible because this is something that was absolutely unheard of in the culture of the ancient Near East. I mentioned this earlier, but, but for this to really hit you, you have to consider the context here. Remember that immediately before this, immediately before what we just read, David kills Goliath. Now, when David killed Goliath, uh, Saul and Jonathan and all Israel were immediately aware of the fact that David's not just some guy. I mean, Saul, you know, as crazy as he was beginning to get here, Saul knew it. He could see the writing on the walls that this kid could take the kingdom from me. And everybody in Israel knew David's not just some shepherd that got lucky. What, what, what Saul and Jonathan, more clearly than anybody, were able to see is that God had some kind of anointing on David's life. This kid was clearly appointed for, for greatness, clearly appointed for high-level leadership, and all things considered, probably appointed for nothing less than the kingship. Now, now, while that was really troubling to Saul, as this passage makes plain, the truth is Jonathan had far more to lose from David's success than Saul did. 
Because Jonathan, if you're unfamiliar, was Saul's heir and therefore the rightful heir to the throne. Now, if David continued on the trajectory that he was on and became the favorite of the nation of Israel, then albeit he would be the next king in Israel. Saul would still get to finish his term. He's still gonna, he's, he's, he is the king of Israel now. He's going to continue to be the king of Israel until he steps down. David will take the mantle after him. Fine, that's, that's the way it'll happen. But if David takes the mantle after him, what that means is Jonathan will never get the chance to sit on the throne of Israel. It means that, that Jonathan effectively would have the life that was rightfully his stolen right out from underneath him. So from a human perspective, Jonathan has way more reason, way more good reason to be envious of David, and yet you see the exact opposite in Jonathan here. What you see here, this would have been so breathtaking for anybody in this culture to hear about, to think about, or even to read about, what happens is it says that, that Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. He establishes a covenant with David, and then he gives David two gifts that were of the utmost significance. He gives David his, his robe, and then he gives him his battle attire, most notably his sword. Now, the robe was, was Jonathan's royal robe. It was a, it basically, it was a symbol of his kingship. It was almost as though Jonathan that day was taking the crown off his own head and putting it on David. But what's even more noteworthy is the fact that, that Jonathan gave David his, his battle gear, specifically his sword. When you, when you understand the significance of that in that culture, you'll understand why I say that's even more noteworthy. To explain it, let me reference the Lord of the Rings, all right? I, um, I mentioned this. I've read The Lord of the Rings for the first time in quarantine last summer. 10 out of 10. If you haven't read it, go home and read it. It's a great book. Um, but I'm going to reference the movie here in, instead of the book. If, um, if you've ever seen the first movie in the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, there's this point when I'm going to sound like such a nerd, and I don't care because my identity is in Christ. Uh, there's this point when the group that's known as The Fellowship of the Ring you know, forms around Frodo. I just am listening to myself talking right now. I'm laughing. <laughs> Woo, let's do it. Okay. So they form around Frodo and, uh, and, and, and basically they, they dedicate themselves. They're going to help Frodo do what he's got to do, which is destroy this ring. <clears throat> um, and so there's this really famous scene in the movie. It's probably the most famous scene from the entire trilogy, specifically one phrase that I, I just can't help but laugh. So when they decide, all right, we're going to help Frodo, you have this character, Aragorn, steps forward. He says, you have my sword. And then you have Legolas steps forward, and he says, you have my bow. And then Gimli the dwarf steps forward and says, and my axe. And if you've ever seen the movie, you just heard Gimli's voice in your mind because you can't say that without hearing that tiny dwarf's voice in your mind. I'm not going to do it. I'm not that bad. I'm just saying. Anyway, the point is, when they said those things, they obviously were not speaking literally. Because if you know anything about hobbits, poor Frodo couldn't have even carried those weapons with him. What they were saying by laying down their weapons then and there was they're saying, I'm going I'm to dedicate all of my skill and all of my strength in support of you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to lay my life down for you so that you can accomplish what it is that you and only you are called to do. It was basically the ancient way of swearing your allegiance to somebody. All that in mind, that is exactly what Jonathan here is doing for David. And so what you have in this story, is, this is why I say that nothing like this would have happened before, you have Jonathan, who's supposed to be the next king, according to the custom of the day, is looking at David, who represents the greatest threat 
to the life that was supposed to be his, what you have here is, is Jonathan is not saying, well, fine, I get out of the way. I understand that you're the clear favorite and it would be useless for me to fight against it. That's not what he's saying. What Jonathan is saying here is, I can see what God is doing in you. It is so clear to me. Shepherds don't just march to the front of battle and, and slay a nine-foot Philistine giant unless the hand of God is on them. I can see what God's doing in you, and I can only imagine what God might do in this world through you. Jonathan's saying, I just want you to know that from this day forward, I'm dedicating my life to seeing it happen. I'm dedicating my life to supporting God's work in your life, regardless of what it costs me. So here's my robe, here's my armor, here's my bow, here's my belt, here's my sword. From here on out, I'm following your lead. Nothing like that had ever happened in a culture like this. So when you understand that, you understand that on the surface, uh, this story is designed to get you and I to compare Saul and Jonathan to each other. Because Saul is the picture of somebody who's been completely conquered by envy, whereas Jonathan, opposite end of the spectrum, is the picture of somebody who has completely conquered their own envy. But if that's the only lens through which you lead this story, it might initially seem inspiring, but I think it'll be incredibly deflating. Because when you and I get out in the world on Monday morning, what we will quickly find is none of us are as good at conquering envy as Jonathan was. And we have a whole lot more King Saul inside of us than we'd like to realize. And so what this story is designed to do at a deeper level is to get us to imagine what it would be like, not if we were Jonathan, but if we had a friend like Jonathan, a friend who gave up what was rightfully his, essentially sacrificing his life so that we could have something that we didn't deserve. If you want the story recorded in 1 Samuel 18 to really begin to affect deep heart change in your life, then what you need to do is, is what this story is designed to get you to do. You need to imagine what it would be like if you were a person like David. Imagine what it would be like if you were born into a family of no reputation. You were the runt of the litter to the point that your own father didn't even believe there was a future for you. But through an act of unbelievable grace, the son of the king comes into your life, demonstrates his love for you, establishes a covenant with a nobody like you, sets aside his royal robe, his majesty, his glory for you, takes off his armor, makes himself vulnerable for you, so that through his sacrifice, you could become something that you stood no chance of becoming apart from his work in your life. Can you imagine how life-changing that would be? You know what's so noteworthy to me? David's not wrestling with envy. You notice that? That's not, even, that's not even in the universe that David's living in right here because he knows how unreal it is that somebody like Jonathan would do all of this for somebody like him. And this story is designed to get us to think in those terms, to imagine what it would be like to be on the other side of that kind of amazing, one-way, life-changing grace. And in that sense, this story is meant to just point forward to the even greater story known as the gospel. See, the, the gospel shows you and I that in Jesus, you have a far greater friend than Jonathan was to David. In Jesus, you, you, have, you have the ultimate friend. You have the true son of the king who comes into your life and through a sacrifice far greater than the one made for David, offers you an inheritance far greater than the one given to David. And it's an understanding and seeing the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on your and my behalf. It's in seeing and understanding that sacrifice 
that the power of envy will be defeated in your and my heart. So I want to close today. I want to call up the worship team. And I just want to show you how Jesus, as the, as the greater Jonathan, has done something so much better for us than Jonathan did for David here. First and foremost, the gospel says that like Jonathan did for David, it, please, while we're, we're almost done today, but please, while we close out, just consider what this is like for you. Make this personal in your own life. What the gospel shows you is that like Jonathan did for David, Jesus Christ established a covenant with you. Now, our culture has lost the concept of a covenant. We're a culture that's driven by contracts. And contracts and covenants are almost the opposite. You enter into a contract for your own protection, for your own safety. But in ancient times, you entered into a covenant not for your own protection, but for the protection of the other party involved. That's what makes this passage so amazing. When Jonathan established his covenant with David, he was saying, in effect, David, regardless of what happens from this moment forward, my love for you and my dedication to you will remain unchanged. It doesn't depend on your faithfulness. It depends on mine. And the covenant that Jesus establishes with you in the gospel is no different. The covenant Jesus establishes with you depends not on your faithfulness, but on his faithfulness. It depends not on what's in your heart, but on what's in his heart. It doesn't depend on anything that you do or don't do. It depends on what Jesus Christ already has done on your behalf. And just like Jonathan does for David in this story, the gospel shows you that Jesus Christ on the cross set aside his robes for you, set aside his glory and his majesty for you. He set aside his armor for you, making himself vulnerable for you. He set aside his sword and his inheritance, what was rightfully his to make it available to you. But what's so much more incredible about Jesus is he does not just offer you what's rightfully his. He was willing to take what was rightfully yours. To understand that aspect of the gospel, the substitution of Jesus Christ, is to have the power of envy defeated in your life. The gospel says that Jesus looked down into your and my life personally, and he said, I'll take what you deserve so that you, through a sheer act of grace, can have what I deserve. Jesus said, I will leave the throne that's rightfully mine and take the cross that's rightfully yours so that instead of the cross you deserve, you could share in the throne that I deserve. And now we can say along with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if God's children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs, with Christ. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? That's the promise that we have in Jesus, that Jesus gave up his inheritance for us, that we might share in that inheritance with him. So what's the answer to envy? Here it is. According to this passage, if you want to see the end of envy in your life, you have to see yourself as David, as the undeserving recipient of a life-changing act of kindness. And you have to see Jesus as the true son of the king, that enters into your life and through his sacrifice offers you a future that you could have never earned. And as that becomes real to us and more real to us throughout our lives, what we'll find is that the question is not, how can I overcome the envy in my life? The question is, how could I ever envy anyone, anything, in light of what Jesus Christ has done for somebody like me? That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, <clears throat> thank you for this story that simply points forward to who you are and what you've done for us. 
Thank you for the truth of the gospel that shows us that you are, you are the true Jonathan. You are the greater Jonathan, the ultimate son of the ultimate king that enters into the lives of, of sinners like us and offers us a future that we could have never earned apart from your grace and your kindness. Jesus, would you help us understand what you've done for us and what we actually have in you so that we could be freed from the power of envy in our lives. It's in your holy name we ask these things. Amen.